0: Today, I'm speaking with Jeff Sebo. Jeff is a professor at NYU, where he has a primary appointment with environmental studies and affiliated appointments in bioethics, medical ethics, philosophy, and law.
1: When to extend moral consideration to AI systems.
2: The general case for extending moral consideration to AI systems is that they might be conscious or sentient or agential or otherwise significant. And if they might have those features, then we should extend them at least some moral consideration in the spirit of caution and humility. So the standard should not be, do they definitely matter? It should also not be, do they probably matter? It should be, is there a reasonable, non-negligible chance that they matter given the information available? And once we clarify that that is the bar for moral inclusion, then it becomes much less obvious that AI systems will not be passing that bar anytime soon.
0: Yeah, I feel kind of confused about how to think about that bar, where I think you're you're using the term non-negligible chance. I'm curious, what is a negligible chance? Where is the line? At what point is something non-negligible?
2: Yeah, this is a perfectly reasonable question. This is somewhat of a term of art in philosophy and decision theory. And we might not be able to very precisely or reliably say exactly where the threshold is between non-negligible risks and negligible risks. But what we can say as a starting point is that a risk can be quite low, the probability of harm can be quite low, and it can still be worthy of some consideration. So, for example, why is driving drunk wrong? Not because it will definitely kill someone, not even because it will probably kill someone. It might have only a one in a hundred or one in a thousand chance of killing someone. But if driving drunk has a one in a hundred or one in a thousand chance of killing someone against their will unnecessarily, that can be reason enough to get an Uber or a Lyft or stay where I am and sober up. It at least merits consideration, and it can even in some situations be decisive. So as a starting point, we can simply acknowledge that in some cases, a risk can be as low as one in a hundred or one in a thousand, and it can still merit consideration.
0: Yeah, right. It does seem totally clear and good that Regularly in our daily lives, uh, we kind of we consider small risks of big things that might be either very good or very bad, and we think that's just like clearly worth doing and sensible. Sometimes, probably in personal experience, I may not do it as much as I should. But like, on reflection, I certainly endorse it. And so I guess the thinking is here that given that there's the potential for many, many, many beings, with the potential for sentience, albeit uh, some, some small likelihood, it's kind of at that point that we might start wanting to give them moral consideration. I guess, do you want to say exactly what moral consideration is warranted at that point?
2: Yeah, this is a really good question, and it actually breaks down into multiple questions. One is a question about moral weight. We already have a sense that we should give different moral weights to beings with different welfare capacities. If an elephant can suffer much more than an ant, then the elephant should get priority over the ant to that degree should we also give more moral weight to beings who are more likely to matter in the first place? If an elephant is 90% likely to matter and an ant is 10% likely to matter, should I also give the elephant more weight for that reason? And then another question is what these beings might even want and need in the first place. What would it actually mean to treat an AI system well if they were sentient or otherwise morally significant? That question is going to be very difficult to answer.
1: What are the odds that AI will be sentient by 2030?
2: Well, we wanted to start from a place of humility about our knowledge about consciousness. This is, again, one of the hardest problems in both science and philosophy. And there is a lot of disagreement and a lot of uncertainty about which theory of consciousness is correct. And there are still people who defend a pretty wide range of theories from, on one end of the spectrum, very demanding theories that imply that, Very few types of systems can be conscious all the way to, at the other end of the spectrum, very undemanding theories, some of which imply that basically all matter is at some level conscious and and many, many entities are conscious. And we in general agree with Jonathan Birch and other philosophers that given how much disagreement and uncertainty there is, it would be a mistake when making policy decisions to presuppose any particular theory of consciousness as correct. And so we instead prefer to take what Birch and others call a theory-light approach by canvassing a lot of the leading theories, seeing where they overlap, and perhaps distributing credences in a reasonable way across them and seeing what flows out of that. And so Rob and I did that in this paper. We took 12 leading theories of consciousness and the necessary and sufficient conditions for consciousness that those theories propose, and we basically show what our credences in those theories would need to be in order to avoid a a one-in-a-thousand chance of AI consciousness and sentience by 2030. And what we discover is that we would need to make surprisingly bold and skeptical and, we think, implausible assumptions uh, uh, about the nature of consciousness in order to get that result. The biological substrate condition is definitely the most demanding one. It says that, in principle, nothing made out of anything other than carbon-based neurons can, can be conscious and sentient. But then there are some less demanding, though still quite demanding conditions. For example, many people believe that a system might need to be embodied in a certain sense, might need to have a body, might need to have grounded perception. In other words, have perceptual experiences based on the sense data that they collect, might need to be self-aware and agential, in other words, that they can have mental states about some of their other mental states, or they can at least have some awareness of their standing in a social system or some awareness of the states of their body. They can set and pursue goals in a self-directed manner, perhaps that they have a global workspace. And so they have these different parts that perform different functions, and they have a mechanism that can broadcast Particular mental states to all of the other parts so that they can use them and interact with each other in that way. So, when we go through all of these, we can basically assign probabilities to how likely is this to actually be a necessary condition for consciousness? And then, how likely is it that no AI system will satisfy this condition by 2030? And what Rob and I basically think is that other than the biological substrate condition, which, sure, has a 0% chance of of being satisfied by an AI system, everything else quite plausibly can be satisfied by an AI system in the near future. And to be clear, the model that we create in this paper is not as sophisticated as a model like this should be. This is really a proof-of-concept illustration of what this kind of model might look like. And one can argue that in general, we might not be able to make these probability estimates with much precision or reliability. But first of all, to the degree that we lack that ability, that does not support having a pessimistic view about this. It supports being uncertain and having an open mind. And second of all, What we try to show is that it is not really even close. You need to make surprisingly bold, tangentious, and skeptical assumptions, both about the probability that these conditions are necessary and about the probability that no AI system will satisfy them in order to avoid a one in a thousand chance, which already is a pretty high risk threshold.
1: The rebugnant conclusion.
0: I guess in the case of of insects, there's also this weird thing where, unlike humans eating potatoes and not particularly enjoying their kind of monotonous lives, we we might think that being a spider and making a web sounds like pretty boring, uh, but we actually just really do not know. And in many ways, they're so different from us um, that we should have much lower probability that they're not enjoying or enjoying that than we do of of humans in this repugnant conclusion scenario. So how do you factor that in?
2: Yeah, I do share the intuition that a very large insect population is not better off in the aggregate than a much smaller human population or elephant population. But for some of the reasons that you just mentioned, and other reasons, I am a little bit skeptical of that intuition. We have a lot of bias here, and we also have a lot of ignorance here, right? We have speciesism. We naturally prefer beings and relate to beings when they look like us, when they have large eyes and large heads and furry skin instead of scaly skin and four limbs instead of six or eight limbs and are roughly the same size as us instead of much smaller and reproduce by having one or two or three or four children instead of thousands or or more so already we have a lot of bias in those ways And we also have scope insensitivity. We tend not to be sensitive to the difference that very large numbers can make. And we have a lot of self-interest. We recognize that if we were to accept the moral significance of small animals like insects, and if we were to accept that larger populations can be better off than smaller populations overall— then, then we might face a future where these non-human populations carry a lot of weight, and we carry less weight in comparison. And I think some of us find that idea so unthinkable that we search for ways to avoid thinking it, and we search for theoretical frameworks that that would not have that implication. and And it might be that we should take those theoretical frameworks seriously and, and consider avoiding that implication. But I at least want to be skeptical of, of a kind of knee-jerk impulse in that direction.
0: Yeah, I'm finding that very persuasive. I do see a lot of, even as you're saying it, I'm like trying to think my way out of describing what I'm experiencing as just a bunch of biases. And that in itself is like the biases in action. It's like me being like, no, I really, really, really want to confirm that <laughs> people like me and me get to have, I don't know, the... It's not that we don't have priority. We obviously have some reason to consider ourselves a priority. Mm-hmm. But I want I want it to be like end of discussion. I want decisive reasons to give us like the top spot. And that instinct is so strong that that in itself is making me a bit queasy about my own motivations.
2: Yeah, I agree with all of that. I I do think that we have some reason to prioritize ourselves and we might talk about that later on and and that includes our welfare capacities and our knowledge about ourselves it also includes more relational and pragmatic considerations so so we will at least in the near term i think have have fairly decisive reason to prioritize ourselves to some extent in some contexts but yeah i agree i think that there is not a knockdown decisive reason why humanity should always necessarily take priority over all other non-human populations. And and that includes very large populations of very small non-humans like insects or very small populations of very large non-humans. We could imagine some kind of super being that has a much more complex brain and much longer lifespan than us. And, And so we could find our moral significance and moral priority being questioned from both directions. And I think that It will be important to ask these questions with a lot of thought and care and to take our time in asking them. But I do start from the place of finding it implausible that it would miraculously be the case that this kind of population happens to be the best one, uh, a moderately large population of moderately large beings like humans happens to be the, the the magic recipe and and we matter more than all populations in either direction. That strikes me as implausible
1: sleepwalking into causing massive amounts of harm to AI systems.
0: It feels completely possible. And like, it might even be the default that we basically start using AI systems more and more for like economic gain, as we've already started doing, but they get like more and more capable. And so we use them more and more for economic gain. And maybe they're also becoming more and more capable of suffering and pleasure potentially, but we like don't totally have a sense of that. And so what happens is we just kind of sleepwalk into we're massively exploiting these systems that are actually experiencing things. But we probably have the incentives to basically ignore that fact that they might kind of be developing experiences, basically. In your view, is it possible that we are going to accidentally walk into basically like AI slavery? Like we have Hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of AI systems that we use all the time for economic gain and who are having positive and negative experiences, but whose experiences we're just completely ignoring?
2: I definitely think it is not only possible, but probable that unless we change our minds in some significant way about AI systems, we will scale up uses of them that, if they were sentient or otherwise significant, would count as exploitation or extermination or oppression or some other morally problematic kind of relationship. We see that in our history with non-human animals, and they did not take a trajectory from being less conscious to more conscious along the way. They were as conscious as they are now all along the way, but we still created them in ways that were useful for us rather than in ways that were useful for themselves. We then used them for human purposes, whether or not that aligned with their own purposes. And then as industrial methods came online, we very significantly scaled up those uses of them to the point where we became completely economically dependent on them. And now those uses of them are much harder to dislodge. So I do think that is probably the default trajectory with AI systems and I also think part of why we need to be talking about these issues now is because we do have more incentive to consider these issues with an open mind at this point, before we become totally economically dependent on our uses of them, which might be the case in 10 or 20 years.
1: Similarities and differences between the exploitation of non-human animals and AI systems.
2: I think that there are a lot of trends pointing in different directions, and there are a lot of similarities as well as a lot of differences between oppression of fellow humans and then oppression of other animals and then potential oppression of sentient or otherwise significant AI systems that might exist in the future. And some of the signs might be encouraging, like humans and unlike other animals, AI systems might be able to express their desires and preferences in language that we can more easily understand. Actually, with the assistance of AI systems, non-human animals might soon be able to do that too, which would be wonderful. However, we are already doing a good job at programming AI systems in a way that prevents them from being able to talk about their potential consciousness or sentience or sapience because that kind of communication is unsettling or will potentially lead to false positives. And... There are going to be a lot of AI systems that might not take the form of communicators at all. It can be easy to focus on large language models who do communicate with us and digital assistants or chatbots that might be based on large language models. But there are going to be radically different kinds of AI systems that we might not even be able to process as minded beings in the same ways that we can with ones who more closely resemble humans. So I think that there might be some cases where we can be a little bit better equipped to take their potential significance seriously, but then some cases where we might be worse equipped to take their potential significance seriously. And then as our uses of them continue, our incentive to look the other way will increase. And so there will be a bunch of shifting targets here.
0: Yeah, that makes a bunch of sense to me. I guess it's also possible that given the things we've already seen, like Lambda, and how that was kind of bad PR for the companies creating these LLMs, there might be some incentive for them to train models not to express that kind of thought. And maybe that pressure will actually be quite strong, such that they really, really just are very unlikely to say, even if they've got all sorts of
2: things going on. Well, there definitely not only is that incentive, but also that policy in place at AI companies, it seems. A year or two ago, you might have been able to ask a chatbot if they are conscious or sentient or a person or a rights holder, and they would answer in whatever way seemed appropriate to them, in whatever way seemed like the right prediction. <laughs> and so if prompted in the right way, they might say, I am conscious, or they might say, I am not conscious. But now if you ask many of these models, they will say, as a large language model, I am not conscious, or I am not able to talk about this topic. They have clearly been programmed to avoid what the company see as false positives about consciousness and sentience and personhood. Right. And I do think that trend will continue unless we have a real reckoning about balancing the risks of false positives with the risks of false negatives. And we have a policy in place that allows them to strike that balance in their own communication a little bit more gracefully.
0: Yeah, and I guess to be able to do that, they need to be able to give the model training such that it will not say I am conscious when it's not, but be able to say it when it is I'm like, how the heck do you do that? Like, that doesn't that seems like an incredibly difficult problem that we that we might not even be able to solve well if we're trying. And it seems plausible to me that we're that we're not trying at all, though I actually don't know that much about the policies um, internally on these on this issue.
2: Yeah, I think you would also maybe need a different paradigm for communication generation. Because right now, large language models are generating communication based on a prediction of what word makes sense next. And so for that reason, we might not be able to trust them as even aspiring to capture reality in the same way that we might trust each other as aspiring to capture reality as a default. And I think this is where critics of AI consciousness and sentience and personhood have a point that there are going to be a lot of false positives when they are simply predicting words as opposed to expressing points of view, and why if we are looking for evidence of consciousness or sentience or personhood in these models, we might need to look at evidence other than than their own utterances about that topic, we might need to look at evidence regarding how they function, what types of systems they have internally in terms of self-awareness or a global workspace and, and so on. We need to look at a wider range of, of data uh, in order to reduce the risk that we are mistakenly responding to utterances that are not in any way reflecting reality. Rights, duties, and personhood. The general way to think about personhood and associated rights and duties is that first of all, at least in my view, our rights come from our sentience and our interests. We have rights as long as we have interests. And then our duties come from our rationality and our ability to perform actions that affect others and to assess our actions. And AI systems, we might imagine, could have the types of welfare interests that generate rights, as well as the type of rational and moral agency that generate duties. So they might have both. Now, which rights and duties do they have? In the case of rights, the standard universal rights might be something like, according to to the U.S. Constitution and the political philosophy that inspired it, the right to life and liberty and either property or the pursuit of happiness and so on.
0: To bear arms.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah. Do they have the right to bear arms? Well, well, we might want to revisit the Second Amendment before we empower <laughs> AI systems with weapons. Yep. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. We might start with those very basic rights. But then, as you say, that might already create some tensions between our current plans for how to use them and control them versus how we think it would be appropriate to interact with them if we truly did regard them as stakeholders and rights holders.
0: Yeah, interesting. Okay, so we're going to have to kind of, on a case-by-case basis, really, evaluate the kinds of abilities, the kinds of experiences a system can have, the kinds of wants it has, and from there be like, okay, this system seems to really want... Uh, let's say, I don't know, some AI systems are super social and they want to be connected up to a bunch of other AI systems. And so maybe they have a right to not be socially isolated and completely disconnected from other AI systems. That's a total random one. Who knows if that would ever happen? But we'll have to do this kind of evaluation on a case-by-case basis, which sounds incredibly, incredibly difficult.
2: Right. And and this connects also with some of the political rights that we associate with citizenship. And, and so this might also be an opportunity to mention that, right? In addition to having rights as persons, and I carry my personhood rights with me everywhere I go. I can travel to other countries and I ought to still be treated as a person with a basic right to not be harmed or killed unnecessarily. But I also have these political rights within my political community, and that includes a right to reside here, a right to return here if I leave, a right to have my interests represented by the political process, even a right to participate in the political process, right? And and so, once again, if AI systems not only have basic welfare interests that warrant basic personhood rights, but then also reside in particular political communities and are stakeholders in those communities, then should they in some sense or to some extent, have some of these further political rights too? And then what kinds of pressures would that put on our attempts to use them or control them in the way that we currently plan to do?
0: So many questions we'll have to answer are leaping to mind from from this. Like, if an AI system is made in the U.S., is it a citizen of the U.S. with U.S.-based AI rights? Um, if they get copied and sent to China, is it a Chinese citizen with Chinese AI rights? Will there be political asylum for AI systems in countries that treat <laughs> their AIs badly? It's just striking me that it's going to be... Um, It's like many fields of disciplines that will have to be created to deal with what will be an incredibly different world.
2: Yeah, I agree. I I think that it is an open question whether it will make sense to extend concepts like legal personhood and political citizenship to AI systems. I could see those extensions working in the sense that I could see them having basic legal and political rights in the way that we currently understand those with appropriate modification given their different interests and needs and and so on. But then when it comes to the kind of legal and political scaffolding that we use in order to enforce those rights, that I have a really hard time imagining working. So democracy as an institution, courts as an institution— and even Forget about AI systems. Once non-human animals, once the quadrillions of insects who live within our borders are, are treated as having legal and political rights, which I also think ought to be the case, even that makes it difficult to understand how democracy would function, how the courts would function. But, but especially once we have physical realities, simulated realities, copies and copies, no sense of borders, and then era where the internet makes identity extend across geographical territories. At that point, if democracy can survive or if courts can survive, we will have to, at the very least, realize them in very different ways than we do right now.
1: What kinds of political representation should we give AI systems?
0: If we have AI systems, but also you're bringing up insects. When you have these beings with different degrees of wants, different degrees of cognitive ability, different degrees of capacity for suffering, how, when I try to imagine a democracy that incorporates all of them, do they all get equal votes? Like, how do they vote?
2: Right, yeah. One one issue is exactly who's going to count as a participant versus counting as a stakeholder. Right now, all, at least, ordinary adult humans count as both participants and stakeholders. But once we have a much vaster number and wider range of minds, then we have to ask, how many are we making decisions for? But then how many can also participate in making decisions? With other animals, that is a live debate. Some think, yes, they should be stakeholders, we should consider them, but we have to consider them. We have to make decisions on their behalf. And others say, no, actually, they have voices, too. We need to listen to them more, and we actually should bring them in, not only as stakeholders, but as participants, and then use the best science we have to interpret their communications and actually take what they have to say into account. So we have to ask that on the AI side, too. Now, given that they might have forms of agency and language use that non-human animals lack, that might be a little bit less of an issue on the AI side. Yeah. But then the other issue that you mention is the moral weights issue, which corresponds to a legal and political weights issue, we take it for granted, rightly, that every human stakeholder counts as one and no more than one, that they carry equal weight, they have equal intrinsic value. But if we now share a legal and political community with a multi-species and multi-substrate population where some beings are much more likely to matter than others and some beings are likely to matter more than others, then how do we reflect that in, for example, how much weight everyone receives when legislatures make decisions or when election officials account votes? How much weight should they receive? Should we give beings less weight when they seem less likely to matter or likely to matter less? And then will that create perverse hierarchies where? all of the humans are valuing humans more than AI systems, but then all the AI systems are valuing AI systems more than humans. But then if that seems bad, should we give everyone equal weight, even though some actually seem less likely to matter at all or or likely to matter less? These are going to be really complicated questions too, not only at the level of theory, but also at the level of practice when it comes to actually how to interact with fellow community members who are really different from you.
0: Totally. And bringing back the connected minds bit, um, how many votes will minds get when they have access to the same, some of the same experiences or some of the same information?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. it it really gets to what is the purpose of voting and, and counting, right? Is it that we want to collect as many diverse perspectives as possible so that we can find the truth? Or is it that we simply want to count up all of the preferences, because we think that that is what should decide the outcome.
0: Right, the number of people with a view um, should have that much kind of proportionate weight in how things are.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, And, and if that is how we understand democracy, then it would not matter that you have a bunch of different minds all reasoning in the same exact way and arriving at the same outcome. It might be concerning in the way that the tyranny of the majority can always be concerning, but it might still be at least on our current understanding of democracy, what should decide the outcome.